How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for listening to the podcast version of my radio show, Famous Dead People, the only show that resurrects famous people from the grave and asks them all the hard questions. If this is your first time listening to the show, please keep in mind that Famous Dead People originally airs as a radio show on Radio Free Brooklyn. So when you hear me say things on the show that sound like radio things like when we air and stuff like that, that's the reason why. Uh, You're about to hear the episode where I interview Charlie Chaplin, played by comedian Louis Kornfeld, and Joan of Arc, played by comedian Bianca Casusol. Uh, If you like the show and you want to shoot us an email or you want to hear an interview with your favorite famous dead person, hit us up at famousdeadpeopleshow at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you fans, and we'll try to get your favorite dead person on the show as soon as possible. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate us five stars on iTunes, tell your friends about it, leave lots of comments, etc., etc. It will shoot us to the top of the podcast charts, and then I will be rolling in dough. And now enjoy Charlie Chaplin and Joan of Arc on Famous Dead People. It's time. Time to start the show. Famous dead people. Oh, you know. Famous dead people. Famous dead people. The story stuck in the head. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this is Famous Dead People, the only show that resurrects famous people from the grave and asks them all the hard questions. I'm your host, Jarrett Berenstein. We have a fantastic show for you today. Coming up later on Famous Dead People, we'll be talking to one of the heroes of the Hundred Years' War and a canonized saint, virgin warrior Joan of Arc, is in the studio. But first, we have a comedic actor, filmmaker, composer who rose to fame with his character, The Little Tramp. During the silent era of American cinema, Charlie Chaplin is here in the studio with us today. Mr. Chaplin, thank you so much for being with us at Famous Dead People. Thank you for having me today, Jared. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I I don't know if this is something that ever came up during your career, but Mm. um, I think that people always assume that you are American because of how prominently you were featured in America's cinema, you know, in the beginning of the 20th century. But you're actually British, isn't that right? Yes, I was born in Dickensian, London. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I am mm -hmm. a British, and uh, and a little-known fact about me, I refuse to ever apply for American citizenship. Really? Yes. Oh, that was something that I actually missed in your your biography. Was that a conscious choice? It was a conscious choice. I saw myself as being a citizen of the world, Hmm. and I refused to declare my position on any national front. This, of course, came back to bite me uh, years later during the communist hysteria of the 1950s. Yes, that is something that I read about, which we will get to. I mean, when you were at the height of your fame, were people ever thrown off by the fact that you weren't clearly American as they were meeting you? I mean, obviously, they they didn't hear your voice. I I was very careful to never speak to anyone publicly who I didn't already know. So when I would go to parties, for example, I would use the art of pantomime to communicate myself to other people. I mean, you're clearly a very skilled pantomime, but this didn't come up, there, there weren't any issues with this as you were... You know, just like trying to live your daily life or, you know, trying to interact with other people? Well, it made things difficult, but fortunately I had my two close friends, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, and they would do most of my speaking for me. Douglas could understand exactly what I wanted just by looking me in the eyes. Mm, Interesting. Yes. I mean, it must be nice to have such close confidence as those. Like, you know, you're working in the same medium. You're both in the silent genre. Yes. Together. And they're just able to communicate for you, and they didn't mind doing that. No, they... Well, Mary Pickford had some trouble with it. Yes, she... uh, Mary and I did not get along. I don't know if you know any of the history of United Artists. Mary Mm. Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, D.W. Griffith, and, of course, myself were the four artists. Mary Mm. and I were always bickering. Douglas Fairbanks, square in the middle. Mm. But I managed to persuade Mary to do a lot of my talking for me at parties... And uh, soirees mm-hmm. and uh, events. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a kind of an amenable situation that you guys had going on. I loved it. Now, in uh, doing a little bit of research for this interview, I discovered that, you know, your life in uh, South London, your early life was a little bit difficult. Very your family good. was desperately poor. Your father was an alcoholic. Your mother sent to a mental institution yes. when you were only nine years old. Yeah. How is that you managed to develop such a keen sense of humor well, coming I, from such a dark place? I think comedy is how a person learns to cope with life's tragedy. Mm -hmm. So I would try to make light of all of, my, of all of my unfortunate situations. For instance, when my father died of an alcohol problem, I would say to my brother, Sidney, I would say, Sid, isn't it funny that dad died of an alcohol problem? And Sid would say, Charlie, it's not funny. And then I would say, it's not funny. And then I would fall down. And Sid had no choice but to laugh at me falling down. And I think that it helped me cope with the sad tragedy of my upbringing. And I hope that I brought some of that coping mechanism to the world at large with my famous character, The Little Tramp. Mm -hmm, of course. Now, I don't want to harp on this too much, but I'd like to just go back for one quick second. This yeah. uh, I, you know, just calling out the fact that, you know, say, isn't it funny that our dad is dead? It doesn't seem like a very nuanced joke. I mean, it seems like you'd be, you know, capable of something so much more. It's such a comedic gift to you. Well, keep in mind, uh, uh, I came up during the height of vaudeville. Yes. So prefacing yes, any joke with the question, isn't it funny, itself was actually very novel. Really? Immediately by saying, isn't it funny, people would begin to laugh because they weren't used to being addressed on such personal terms. Hmm. Vaudeville was very broad. Okay. Until a handful of us decided to make it even more personal by saying things like, isn't it funny, or... Have you ever noticed... Ooh, the birth of uh, observational comedy. Yes. Interesting, interesting. So, for example, I could be like, isn't it funny that it's Friday? Yes, and, and then people would say, yes, that is funny. And then they would laugh. Yeah. They never thought about it that way hmm. before. That joke managed to get you by pretty well until about 1910 or so. Mm -hmm. At that point, it had been about 20 years of pointing out how things are funny. And at that point, people would <laughs> yell to you, yes, we know it's funny. What else have you got? Mm -hmm. Understood, understood. And that, that's, that's where the phrase, haven't you noticed, came from. It was a hmm. quick after, isn't it funny, fell out of use. Then people started to say, haven't you noticed how today is Friday? And then people would say, yes, that's very funny. I did <laughs> notice that. It, he's saying what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, so I'm, I, what I find fascinating about this so far is just like I feel like we're developing a nice arc for how comedy is developing through the vaudeville age and also just like in general around the world. Like, yes. you know, so it starts, you know, has a little epicenter and then that spreads around. Then that joke eventually gets told too many times and has to develop into something else. Exactly. You have to reinvent. The comedy is all about reinventing the wheel mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Now, you did say that there was a, what you could call an intimate connection between the depravity in which you grew up, the, um, the, the, the poverty in which you grew up, and your development of what would eventually become your iconic character, The Little Tramp. That's yes. a fair assessment to make, right? I think so, yes. Mm -hmm. now, now, if do you think that if you had come from more prestigious and uh, affluent background, that, that would have affected you creatively? I've, no, I think I would have been just as funny. You're either born <laughs> with it or you're not born with it, and mm -hmm. I was clearly born with it. I think I would have been just as funny, but I think that my character, the little tramp, would instead of being the little tramp, would have been the, the rich, the very rich man. The very rich man. Yes, mm. but I would have found a way to make the very rich man a universal symbol of collective humanity, as I did with the little tramp. It's not a question of where you are in 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 a class hierarchy. It's mm -hmm. a question of relatable things. Like mm. many people have pointed out, that the little tramp was so. 
universal because he represented uh, uh, the underdog in all of us. But actually, people responded to the little tramp because of the faces I would make. I would look at the camera and I would make faces Mm -hmm. with my eyes. And I would say things to people with my eyes like, can you believe this? (laughs) Isn't this funny? Have you ever noticed how this seems so true? And I could have done that whether I was playing a little tramp or a very, very rich person. Either way, it's all in the eyes comedy. Mm, understood, understood. I like how we're, you know, it, the transition is, 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 is moving through where you, you say, isn't this funny? And then that becomes old. And then it's become, have you ever noticed? And then you, then you start communicating those exact same things, but physically instead. That's yes. very, I don't know. I yes, would... yes, keep in mind, back in the silent days, we had no dialogue. Mm-hmm. No talking whatsoever. Yeah, That's, in fact, when talkies came around, we called them talkies specifically because we were setting them apart from the non-talkies. Which yes. we didn't call non-talkies back then. We called them movies. Yes, or moving pictures. Moving pictures, mm-hmm. yes. We would call them movies or moving pictures or cinema. Mm-hmm. But then we started talking. We called them talkies to set them apart. So I couldn't rely on my we, words. I couldn't yes. say to people, isn't it funny? Yes. I had to use my eyes to mm-hmm. say, isn't this funny? Mm-hmm. And I was the first one before me. Uh, of course, if I can go back to some comic influences, the great, oh, please. the great Max Linder, France's contribution to world comedy. He was a very funny silent comedian, but he used too many title cards in his movies. Mm-hmm. Every three seconds, he would cut to a title card that it's would like, say, "Isn't this funny?" Yeah, it's Have, like haven't like you ever novel. noticed? He would he would get a pie in his face, and then it would cut to a title card that would say. Have you ever noticed how I just got a pie in my face? <laughs> I was the first one to realize we can cut the title card out. I can, I can ask the same question with my eyes, Jared. Mm. Mm, interesting. No, thank you. I mean, I, I really appreciate the uh, delving into the, um, the comedic influences as well. It's something oh, yes. that um, uh, uh, I was really hoping we would get to, actually. Yes. Now, um, my, my biggest comic influence? Uh, 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 skinny men. S- just skinny men in general? S- well, no, s- yes. Skinny men. Anytime you see a skinny man, that is one of your comedic influences. It, well, well, yes. Let me, let me amplify that. Silent movies used to feature skinny men, and they would feature fat men. Yes. I was the first one to say, what if we put a skinny man and a fat man together? The contrast was funny. And then I would be in the frame with a skinny man and a fat man, and I would look at the camera, and with my eyes, I would say, isn't Can this I guess, funny? Is it this funny? Or, yes. or have you ever noticed yes. that that man is skinny and that man is fat? Yes. And so... Oh, okay. Yes. And this goes back, of course, to Comedia dell'art. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, no need to rehash that. Uh, going back to a little bit of your early history, um, I read that your first big break was at the age of 16. You were cast as uh, Billy the Page Boy in Huge. a production of Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. Huge. The, role... great, the great William Gillette. Yes, that's right. Um, now he, he, was, he, he, was, he was our day's answer to Benedict Cumberbatch. Really? He was gorgeous. Mm. No one knew why. There was just sort of like a, he had an interesting face? Is great, that... great mystery to his charm. Ooh, not conventionally handsome, not in the Victorian sense, but mm-hmm. people swooned for the great William Gillette. There's something in the character of Sherlock Holmes. People <laughs> fall for him. I think it's the obsessiveness of mm-hmm. the character. I think people just really enjoy watching people be good at something. I think yes, too. and let's not forget how exciting it is to see a good mystery. Mm-hmm. Of course. But yes, I was Billy the Page Boy to William Gillette's Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that production? Because I'm not sure if it's a show that is universally known. And Billy the Page Boy, I, I wouldn't even assume, is a character in a Sherlock Holmes play. Like, can you talk about what, what your role was, like what the story was, maybe? Wonderful. It was wonderful. 
It was a one-act performance that took place in Sherlock Holmes's drawing room. A young woman came to 221B Baker Street with a, with a, with a, she was raving with a problem, a mystery that needed to be solved. Mm -hmm. And William Gillette as Holmes, this was the most amazing thing. He didn't say a word for the entire show. He sat and he listened to her. And at one point, after she was done explaining her problem, he wrote a note and he, he rang a bell. And Jarrett, when that bell rang, I entered as mm -hmm. Billy the Page Boy. And I remember to this day my line. My line was, can I help you, Mr. Holmes? And he didn't say a word, William Gillette. He just handed me the paper, mm -hmm. and I read the paper. Do you, I'm sorry, do you mind if I pause you for a second? Yes. So you say that um, this, this woman comes in. Yes. Uh, she's distraught. She has this mystery for Sherlock Holmes to solve. He's not saying a word. He's not saying a word. You come in. How much time has passed in this show so far? Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours, and not a word has been spoken by Sherlock Holmes. It's just this distraught woman. And, and the audience could not take their eyes off of Mr. William Gillette. Oh, Why? Man. Because he was conveying his thoughts with his eyes. Mm -hmm. I, I remember watching him and thinking, someday... I'm going to steal this lesson from him. I'm going to apply it to comedy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to apply it to uh, my life's work. And, and shortly after that, the motion picture was born. And I said to myself, Charlie, <laughs> remember that lesson you learned, that important lesson, watching how William Gillette communicated with his eyes? And I mm -hmm. applied it to my character. He was that conscious of a decision. Yes. Oh, interesting. I knew what I was doing from the word go. So he doesn't say a word. <laughs> He writes a note. He dings a bell. I come in. I say, can I help you, Mr. Holmes? He gives me the note. I read it. I say, right away, Mr. Holmes. I leave. An hour and 45 minutes later, I come back. Has anything happened on stage in that hour and 45 minutes? Not a thing. Not, not one thing. They're waiting for me to wow. return. <laughs> they sit <laughs> silently, staring at each other, mm -hmm. thinking whatever thoughts... Holmes would be thinking in that moment, All right. thinking whatever thoughts the woman would be thinking in that moment. Mm -hmm. The audience is riveted. Okay. And what happens when you come back? I'm riveted now. I want to know what happens. I bring a, an officer from a mental institution with me, and I point to the woman, and I say, there she is! And he takes her away. Dad, we find out at the end of the play that the note that Holmes wrote is, this woman is insane. Amazing. Oh, bravo. Bravo. That, ah. Oh. That's, I mean... Listen, I know that you can't really convey the effect of a play and the majesty of a play just in words, but I, I, I feel like I was driven there. I, yes. feel like, I feel like I sat through that entire four and a half hour. It was a four and a half hour play. Four and a half hour play. Oh and and people, it really spoke to people. People were terrified in the, in the Victorian age about mm -hmm. madness. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. everyone was going mad. We were dirt poor. Yes, of Very course. Poor. Um, now, of course, after your commercial success in London, you move over to America and start the vaudeville circuits. Yes. Did you find any difficulty in transitioning to American audiences? I, I did, yes. American audiences were a tough nut for me to crack mm -hmm. at first uh, because they were all uh, – uh, American audiences were very – they were glum. Glum. They didn't like laughing. Hmm, interesting. Americans at the turn of the century were very – nothing's funny, they said. Hmm. And I said, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong. Okay. So you would, for example, you know, enter in your classic vaudeville act. I would enter. Maybe say a, isn't it funny? And I, just stone-faced from yes, the audience. Nothing. Hmm. Interesting. Nothing. And so how did you then tailor that to eventually start getting a reaction? I stopped saying, isn't it funny? And instead I said, hey, everyone, look at me. Watch me fall down. And then I would fall down, and I would go, ow. 
I hurt my bottom. <laughs> they wouldn't laugh at that, but I wait. Wouldn't. So, so still no, no laughs. Still no laughs. Okay, because already there's like three three times in that. I I would assume you would have gotten a laugh already. You would assume wrong. They right. didn't laugh, so I held on. I said, "I really hurt my bottom." <laughs> Nothing. So I said, "I mean, wow, my bottom <laughs> really hurts very badly." And at that point, I would start to get a, a snicker. Mm-hmm. I would get a snicker. People okay. would begin snickering. They're starting to warm up now. That's when I knew I had them. And oh. so I realized, just persist. Hold on to that one thing. And then I would sing a song. It's called, My Name is Billy. And I'm the boy with the hurt bottom. Okay. It went like this. Mm. And we don't need... No? Okay. <laughs> I think we need to hear the whole song. By the end of the song, people loved... I introduced comedy, basically, to America. Interesting. Yes. Oh, wow. Now, that's something that was completely uh, absent from Wikipedia, but I believe it. Um... Now, uh, one of the uh, w- one of the staples of your vaudeville act, of course, was the character, the inebriate swell. That's correct, right? The inebriate, yeah. The inebriate swell. Um, uh, it was described just on Wikipedia as a drunk. Were there any similarities between that and what eventually become your little tramp character? Imagine the tramp drunk. Okay. And you have the inebriate. My, oh. my stroke of genius was I needed to separate the tramp from the inebriate. So I thought to myself, Charlie, what if he's not drunk? What would he be like if he weren't drunk? Mm-hmm. And the tramp was born. Hmm, interesting. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, going back over your catalog, I'm sure that we could find, you know, moments where the character of the little tramp was inebriated. You know, I'm just shooting. I, I challenge you to find really? even a single film. There's no, there is zero footage of the little tramp drunk in any of the work. I'm very proud of that fact. Really? Yes. Oh, man. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I can't uh, contradict that now. I am on cocaine in the movie Easy Street. <laughs> Which, that thing, <laughs> you could buy over the counter at a pharmacy. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, at the time, things were a lot more relaxed. Moving on. Um, so I understand that when you, you, you first started working for the, uh, in films, yes. it was with the Keystone Company. Yes. Um, despite the fact, and this is a quote from you, despite the fact that you found their comedy to be, quote, a crude melange of rough and rumble. Sounds like me. Yeah. What was it exactly that you disliked about the Keystone pictures? They never made... Faces at the camera. They fell down and then got up and then bumped into each other. Mm-hmm. And I always thought to myself, too manic. Mm. What do they think is funny about this? I was the first one in the movie Kid Auto Races at Venice. I was hit by a, by a boxcar. Mm-hmm. I fell down in the Keystone tradition. But mm-hmm. then I looked up. I looked at the camera. And with my eyes, I said, I didn't is... like that. Oh, okay. People love that. People in the audience said, I wouldn't like that either, Charlie. If I fell down, I wouldn't like it either. They said, we've been loving these Keystone movies, but I'll tell you the crap now. Now that you looked at us with your eyes and you said, I don't like that, that's crap. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what these Keystone cops think when they fall down. I like how, I mean, uh, I obviously wasn't there at the time, but was there really... Um, such a, uh, a a turning point for American audience. They were so, it seems like they were so fickle. They were just instantly be so uh, turned on the things that they once used to love. Is that the case? Yes, yes. Yeah. 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 There was a lot of turnaround on, on tastes. Hmm, interesting. Now, um, you know, going over your biography, once you developed the Little Tramp character, which was very fast, just your second movie, you're already, you know, portraying the Little Tramp. I figured it out. <laughs> you did figure it out. Um, it's basically just a long list of comedic triumphs. Like, you know, you, One your, after the other. your salary keeps on going up. You keep on getting up. more and more acclaim. Yep. You're making a film a week. Your popularity is rising. You have almost complete comedic control over what you're doing. And then 
the hiccup of sound yes. is introduced into the medium and you drag your heels a little bit. Yes. It's not something that you want to get involved with immediately. What what was the cause of that hesitation? I was thinking, well, now I'm going to have to say the words. Isn't this funny? I've done that already. Mm-hmm. I spent my youth doing that. Yeah. I don't want to look backwards. I want to look forwards. Mm-hmm. And I believe that in the future, we will not be saying, isn't it funny? We'll be thinking it and we'll be able to read each other's minds. This was something you were thinking at the time. You were thinking this. Um, you have to understand, looking yeah. back now, the 1920s, the 1930s, that feels old timey. Mm-hmm. To us, that felt super modern. Of course. We were looking forward to the 1930s as being the future. We assumed there would be Zeppelins everywhere. Mm-hmm. We assumed Zeppelins would be docking on the top of skyscrapers and people would be getting out of their Zeppelins to dance at sophisticated parties <laughs> on the roof of buildings. We assumed every building would come equipped with an elevator mm-hmm. all the way to the top. I assumed wrongly mm-hmm. that within 10 years, the talkies would be completely defunct. I thought the talkies would be like what 3D movies eventually become, mm-hmm. a fad. Yes. I assumed eventually we would get rid of the pictures entirely. And a director or a comedian would be able to project the story they had in their mind directly into the mind of their audience using futuristic 1930s technology. Of course. Which, of course, back then was microwave radiation. (laughs) We thought that was the solution to everything. We were microwaving everything. How wrong we were. We all gave each other cancer. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we really had a lot of confidence in radiation in the no, 1930s. No, I, I believe it. I believe it. I mean, I, I understand also the time that vulcanized rubber was also a very big Huge. Uh, commodity at the time. Huge. Um, yeah, no, I, I find it fascinating that you and other people from that era had that much faith in the uh, progression of technology that it would so f- it, it would become so advanced so quickly. Yes. Was there, were there other things that had happened back then that advanced so fast to make you think that, or was it just faith in, in the minds of humanity? Everything was advancing back then. Horses were turning into automobiles, mm-hmm. and phonographs were turning into uh, 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 player pianos. <laughs> Everything was transforming so <laughs> radically. Mm-hmm. Homes were turning into larger homes, and larger mm-hmm. homes were turning into apartment buildings, everything. It was just go, go, go. Yeah, okay, I understand. And then, of course, Herbert Hoover happened. Yes. Mm. And he said, stop. He's the one that's looking at all the progress. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, all of this is new information to me. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Um, now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the... You know, the legal troubles that you ran into Thank on you. account of your divorces and your uh, liberal political views. Um, but I understand that the tabloids and what you would call political witch hunts ended up driving you to move to Switzerland. Um, did you find the climate there more open? Was that a positive switch for you? No. I really? Mo- I moved to Switzerland specifically because it was cold and isolated and- and alien, and that's how I was feeling, Jared. Mm-hmm. I looked for a climate that reflected my inner feelings in the outer weather so that I didn't have to think about how I felt. I could look out my window and say, yep, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, I, you know, I would just think that, um, you know, someone with your acclaim, someone with your uh, considerable uh, artistic abilities and, and such renown, you could choose to live anywhere, do anything. You could have the kind of creative control. I was in mourning. I had made a movie called A King in New York. Mm-hmm. Yes. People hated it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they pointed out to me, Charlie, why would a king be in New York? And I said to them, well, you should watch the movie. That will answer the question. And they said, we don't have time to watch the movie. <laughs> We're too excited. 
The Second World War <laughs> recently ended. We're too excited. We're going out. We're doing things. <laughs> Just tell me quickly, why would a king be in New York? I said, I get, you have to see the movie. And they mm-hmm. said, we don't have time. And I said to myself, mm, you don't have time. I guess I don't have time either. Hmm. I'm going to a place where they have nothing but time, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they make um, watches. They do, yeah. In Switzerland. Um, just a... a you know, just talk about this uh, this film a little bit. Um, I'm sure all of our listeners are curious the same way that that uh, busy post-World War II person was busy as well. What was, how did a king end up in New York? Why why did he go there? Um, if we had seen the movie, what, what would we have learned from that? He came to New York to ask for a loan because he had bankrupted his country. Okay. But what he discovered was that communism is much better than monarchy. Mm-hmm. It's a weird movie. It's strange. I, I now looking back on it, mm. I can see why people were so angry. What with the communists being our enemies? Yes. But back then, I thought to myself, "What if the communists were <laughs> our friends?" <laughs> this, I mean, this is one of the things that I respect about your career is that you are you're so willing to press those boundaries. Like you, you move from what if I didn't say, isn't it funny before a joke? You move then to what if I don't speak at all? You then move to, well, maybe I could speak a little bit because we have the talkies now. Um, and now you're moving to maybe the communists are our friends. Maybe they're people that we, that we aren't sworn enemies to. I was wrong. Oh, you were wrong. I was wrong. Oh, interesting. I mean, was, that, was there a personal experience that you had that? Yes. I was on a train. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting next to a man. He was reading the Communist Manifesto. Yes. And I said, excuse me, are you a communist? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, oh, that's very nice. And he said, you're not my friend. Don't talk to me. Whoa. And he went back to reading his book, and I said, if this is how one of them (laughs) talks, imagine the collection of them. Rude. I made a huge mistake. I tried Mm -hmm. to withdraw it with my next movie, uh, which was called uh, uh, um, uh, Countess in Hong Kong. But Mm -hmm. by that point, people were like, Charlie. Mm -hmm. They just weren't having it. Why would a countess be in Hong Kong? And I said, you have to watch the movie. Mm -hmm. It has Marlon Brando in it. Do you mind, uh, since we're on the the topic of your political leanings, do you mind talking about um, a number of people at the time when they saw the end of The Great Dictator, which, um, as most people know, ends with you just speaking directly and bluntly to the camera about your political views. Um, do you now, knowing what you know about communists, do you regret ending your one of your greatest pictures that way? No, because that wasn't my message. I, I'll tell you something, Jared. Something mm-hmm. very interesting. People think I made that movie to lampoon Adolf Hitler. Um, I'm fascinated by what you are. I, I cannot wait to hear what you're about to say. I didn't know who that was. You, wait, I'm sorry, what? Never heard of him. How did you how did you end up creating such a such a powerful likeness then? He looked exactly like me. I found out later on. Mm-hmm. I was I asked myself, okay, what if the inebriate weren't drunk? Mm-hmm. Get the tramp. What if the tramp were the dictator of, of a country? The entire country. Wow. Turns out that was really happening in the world. Everyone thought it was a really satirical point. No, purely out of my imagination. And so at the very end of the movie, when you espoused your political views, were those also the, a flight of fancy? Were those also things you were creating out of midair? The subtext of that speech was, isn't this funny? No one got it. Apparently they were too worried about the rise of Hitler, mm-hmm. which I wish I knew that it, now. It, yeah, I, I mean, would have made a very different movie. You I would have at least prefaced by saying, isn't it funny? <laughs> Huge mistake. Killed my career. Now, um, my last question to you yeah. um, uh, I don't know if uh, if if you were or were not aware of this at the time, but um, 
I want to talk about an event that occurred right after you died, if you don't mind. Um, yes. I discovered on your Wikipedia that after you died and your body's buried in Switzerland, um, your body, your dead body, was stolen from your grave in 1978, and the robbers held it for ransom yes. until your wife and the police managed to catch them. Yes. Is there a part of you that appreciates the irony of that? How, that seems like a comical little tramp type of caper to be. And then th that happened to your dead body. Yes. You know what I thought? Mm. I thought, I wish I had thought of that mm. 50 years ago. That would have been so funny. Of course, at the turn of the century, people loved body snatching capers because people were digging up bodies left and right. Are you talking about the turn of the century being the beginning of the 20th century, the early beginning 1900s? Of the 20th century. I wish mm. I thought of that in 1904. Of course, I wasn't making movies in 1904. Yes. So I couldn't have thought of it. I was too busy thinking about where my next meal was going to be coming from. Mm -hmm. When they stole my body, I thought that would have made a perfect <laughs> movie. Well, Mr. Chaplin, thank you so much for being with us here today. My pleasure. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be talking to French hero of the Hundred Year War, St. Joan of Arc. Stay with us. Hey everybody, just want to take a quick break to remind you to subscribe to Famous Dead People on iTunes, and if you're so inclined, rate us five stars and leave a comment. That stuff helps us out a ton. And feel free to hit us up at FamousDeadPeopleShow at gmail.com if you want a specific Famous Dead person on the show, or if you have any comments or whatever. We love hearing from you guys. And lastly, if you really like this show and you want to send us some money to help keep us on the air, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash FamousDeadPeople and click on the Support This Show button Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Famous Dead People on Radio Free Brooklyn. Famous Dead People, the only show that resurrects famous people from the grave and asks them all the hard questions. I'm your host, Jared Berenstein. We're here every Monday at 3 p.m. only on Radio Free Brooklyn. My next guest is one of the heroes of the Hundred Years' War a warrior sent from God using the power of divine inspiration to help defend France from the English. Please welcome to Famous Dead People, St. Joan of Arc. Ms. Arc, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. I'm blushing. That was <laughs> so kind. Uh, do you mind if I call you Joan? It feels very intimate. Okay, well, we'll just see. <laughs> I'll call you St. Joan. No, no, I like it. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so allow me to set the scene for our listeners, because your story is pretty incredible, if you mind me saying. Thank you. It's the early 1400s. France is under siege by the British. And also there's a civil war happening in France because of drama with the royal family. England is basically one city away from conquering all of France. And that is the yeah, world that is the great. world that you're born into. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the good thing about it is you sort of, you know, you don't know it's any different. You're just a baby. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, cool. Everything is garbage. Mm -hmm. But you don't know. You're just like, oh, that's what things are like. Yeah, that's just the world that you're that you're used to living in. Yeah, so it was not it was I think it's probably more stressful for an adult than for a baby mm -hmm. to be in the middle of a war. Of course it's babies so, are pretty chill with war. I understand. I mean, did you do you feel like, you know, looking back that there were things that happened to you as a child that you're you could recognize now as being weird and different, you know? Um, that oh, that was a wartime thing. That was something that only happens in a country that's being torn apart. Well, I think you know, I probably saw a lot more murder okay. um, and rape than most children. Okay. But I do think, like, you know, get it out of the way early. A lot of adults see that mm -hmm. or don't even. And yeah. it's horrifying to yeah. them to imagine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 
Captain Planet or a cartoon that you guys watch now is very stressful for me. Really? I don't, well, I don't get it. Uh, but I imagine <laughs> rape and murder you would have a very hard time with. Yes. So I think, you know, give me a comfort with it early, which is nice. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. And do, I mean, you know, asking you now, do you feel like that's something that we should adopt as a general philosophy, like try to expose children to the horrors that life has to offer and then everything else after that would be generally pretty pleasant? Oh, uh, you know, I would say I didn't really stick around long enough to see that is true. how that would affect me long term. Yes. But I felt okay about it. Okay. I would say, you know, wh- whatever's going to be is going to happen. Gotcha. Well, that's, you know, that's a very, um, that's a very positive outlook that you have, uh, uh, St. Joan. Um, now, as we have the gift of hindsight, as we mentioned, we call this war uh, that you were in with England the, and France, the, um, the Hundred Years' War. But at the time, of course, that you're coming into prominence, it's only been going on for about 90 years. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask, like, what, what, how was everybody referring to this war at the time that we now know to be the Hundred Years' War? Well, every year... We would change the name. <laughs> so every year we thought, this is it. It's, you know, 67-year war, 68-year okay. war, et cetera. So that was what we did to celebrate New Year's was also mm-hmm. war renaming day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe this is it, you okay. know. And, of course, it wasn't. Mm, understood. Uh, I mean, so, you know, going back, you're born... You're a farm girl uh, living a pretty normal, if war-torn, life Mm -hmm. uh, in a 15th century France. Um, And then, you know, the first miracle happens to you. This, this, um, this, You have this vision when you are 13 years old. Everyone thinks that's the first one, but I feel like that's the one that people paid attention to. Oh, so there were more. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes I would just walk around and find like a piece of fruit and I didn't... (laughs) expect to see one mm-hmm. that day yeah. and it would be like oh it's a little dirty but it's a miracle it counts so mm. there were easily seven or eight pit- bits of fruit um <laughs> once i was like god i really hope i really hope it rains today and it did mm-hmm. so i i, I feel they, like people aren't counting some of the other some ones. of those other miracles yeah. I just, I, I don't know, I feel like those are a little bit more rote, the kind of miracles that we all experience, you know, <laughs> but... I mean, I don't think so. Oh, I mean, hey, that's completely fair. Um, but so let's talk about this vision, though. Um, you know, maybe not the first miracle that you experienced, but definitely mm-hmm. an important one. Uh, definitely, yeah. uh, uh, a, um, you know, a decisive, um, um, uh, you know, it's directed your life in a different, in a different way. You're only 13 years old. And the Archangel Michael, as you as you tell it, yeah. um, tells you to fight for the French, to aid the King of France and save France from English rule. Yeah. And so the tricky thing about it is, is so Mike, he's uh, he's a real grump is the thing. <laughs> and I didn't think I was sort of hoping for another bread day. You know, like you just find a piece of bread. The miracle would regular. be that you found some bread on the yeah, floor. Yeah. And then Mike rolls up and he... Uh, it's bossy. He's just mm-hmm. bossy, and you can't say no. Okay. You no, know, you gotta be like, okay. It sounds. I mean, uh, it sounds like your attitude at the time was not something like, oh, this is a miraculous thing that's happening. It seems like you, like you've been normalized to seeing angels giving you divine providence. Is that not the case? Well, you just knew, like, oh, if I find a piece of bread, it's an angel. You know, you pray to different angels. Okay. And then you meet one, and you're like, ugh. <coughs> I mean, this. I hope. I okay. 
you know, mm. but... So you kind of went begrudgingly along with what Archangel Michael told you to do. Well, here, here's the thing I don't know if you know about God. You don't get a lot of options okay. generally <laughs> with him. Okay. It's not like, hey, cool. That free will thing is true, but mm-hmm. I also feel like, you know, he can fuck with you. I so just... you sort of just have to be like... Okay, I guess. All right. Well, it's just I, you know, from from reading your biography, it seems like you were driven by a passion. Like That's you were driven by these about, visions. I knew I should have wrote something myself, <laughs> but I was busy being in a war. Of course, of yeah. course. Um, so you know, you're you're 16 years old, and mm-hmm. uh, you know you you ask the um, you you go to this town. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. The uh, Vacoulures, is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's well. I just called it Vacilor, Vac- uh, but that was that's just like a little. It's a neighborhood joke. Understood. Yeah. Uh, you know, you go to this town. You you ask the commander of the town of the garrison um, that you want somebody to take you to the king yeah. because you had this vision and you're supposed to fight mm-hmm. for him. Uh, and I understand from the historical record that they did not take you that seriously because. You're a 16 year old girl with no military experience. Yeah, which, you know. like, well, excuse you. Like, <laughs> how dare you? Um, you're not doing so hot. Mm-hmm. What year are we at now? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they were real jerks about it. Yeah, I mean, do you remember anything with the, the, the response that they gave you specifically? Well, yeah, I mean, at first I think they were like, oh, I don't know, are we going to rape her or not? And they didn't. <laughs> so that was a win. Um, but then I was like, hey, I want to talk to the king. Uh, and he was like, oh, you can tell it to me. And I was like, mm, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. really know you. Plus, I heard you talk about raping me earlier. <laughs> and I just don't feel super solid about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, I just knew, because I really, it's hard for me to explain, like, what a grump Mike is. Mm-hmm. And once you get to know him, like, as far as the angels go, he's all right. But he, like, is really just, he's very terse. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was going to be like, that's not what I said. Right, and, like, right. I was going to have to have a whole... New thing with him. So it's really, it's just like a really frustrating day. I understand. Um, yeah. So, what, you know, you, you mentioned before how many miracles that, you know, happened to you in your daily life and this vision being, mm-hmm. being one of them. Um, the next part of the story is how you convince this garrison to actually take you to the king. You perform a miracle for them and you predict the outcome of a battle that is happening miles away that you that you could not possibly have any knowledge of. And because you correctly predict it, then they take you seriously and decide to take you uh, to the king. That's, you yeah, know. Yeah, here's the thing about that that's, that a lot of people don't know. Mm-hmm. You ever just bluster, I'm psychic, I can call a coin flip? It's just a battle. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to go one or two ways. I had a 50-50 shot, <laughs> and I figured, well, I don't want to call in any big guns yet. Mm-hmm. For, uh, for realsies miracle. Yeah. Well, it's just like, let's roll the dice. So you were willing to take this 50-50 chance on whether or not you'd be able to protect France on whether or not you'd be able to save France from England. Well, I feel like if you're asking me to do something, you got to, like, throw me a bone. Mm-hmm. You know, give me something to work with. Oh, so maybe you feel like Arch- Archangel Michael would have helped you would out. Would have been like, all right, here you go. Okay. Yeah. All right, so that so that was divine inspiration that led you to Yeah, to that, I mean, maybe. they didn't talk to me about it or anything. But gotcha. But I, like... I was like, well, I'm just going to do this and right, see so how it goes. You kind of shot from the hip on that one. I'm not familiar with that phrase. <laughs> so, moving on. Uh, so, you go to see the king, and um, you tell the king that uh, that you are meant to lead his army uh, against the English, even though, mm-hmm. as we said before, you are a 16-year-old girl and you have no military training. Um, 
the entire country well, you know, gotta start somewhere right yeah you know you put um you know one foot in front of the other as they say um man i don't want to tax your your memory too much but mm-hmm. they do allow you to lead a, an army against the siege of orleans Mm. What was it exactly that you said to the king that convinced him of this? Because it's still pretty insane. You know, you haven't performed any miracles for him or anything. And he just lets you. You know how sometimes you meet someone, you know, like, oh, we're going to be friends. Okay. So I was hanging out. His court is crazy, by the way. There's just so much stuff going on there. And there's can you Can you elaborate one, on that? There's just a lot of people. It's like a big, long haul. Uh, everyone's jibber-jabbering. And this one peasant oh, did this thing where he just sort of tripped and righted himself. And it wasn't even that big deal, big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you make eye contact with someone across the room. It's like we can't out loud joke about it. But Okay. And you did that with the king. Did you, you both, see that? We you both, both saw like, this thing. Look at this asshole. Uh, and he was like, <laughs> this girl's cool. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, do you mind if I pause you for a second? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Chaplin, you know, you, you're you're hearing this as a um, as an expert in physical comedy as well. Like, does that ring true to you that this connection that people make is that strong? I think that that is the deepest connection. That's what binds us together. Mm-hmm. That's what makes us enjoy laughing. I, as you were speaking, John, I was mm-hmm. thinking, I wish I thought of that. <laughs> a you know, peasant in a hall, <laughs> falling down. Oh, I bet his bottom must have hurt so bad. I heard what you had said earlier, and I think that the best way I could sum up that look was, isn't that funny? (laughs) (laughs) And it... (laughs) I think that's really what started it all. Mm -hmm. So you have this this momentary connection with the king where you both recognize that something really funny just happened. Mm, And and you can laugh. You have to just hold it in. Yeah, it's like when somebody does something funny in church, so you're not allowed to laugh. That's the Mm -hmm. the strongest laugh that you have. Um, And so you just have this instant connection. You have this instant bond with the king of France. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. and so then he says to you, you know, oh, little girl, that was a great moment. Uh, what is it that I need that well, you need you know from me? Well, you know what's great is we never acknowledged it. Oh, There was just that, like, okay. you know when you're looking at someone and there's a little bit of a wink mm-hmm. in your eyes, even though you're not winking, mm-hmm, of like, mm-hmm. we both know what's up. This is silly. Mm-hmm. All of your people are big dum-dums. Yeah. Let's get it sorted. And the group he gave me was not great. It and the, I'm sorry, the what? Like, the crew that I got to lead... Right, was like not the A team. Okay, you know they were all right, but mm, maybe he was sort of like trying to uh, stack the deck against you to see how strong your divine provenation was. Yeah, I think he was a little bit like, all right, I'm gonna give you an inch. Okay, uh, but yeah, a lot of real dum dums in that crew. <laughs> Understood. Um, so now this is where, as I, there's so many amazing things that happen in this story, mm. um, and you know we're just going from one insane thing to the next. The next insane thing that happens is. It works. Is you take this, you 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 go to the siege of Orleans and you resolve it in nine days, and that's um, amazing to me. That whatever it was that you were doing there in leading this army actually accomplished what you said was going to happen. I was really hoping I'd get eight, just because it was a nice round number. You wanted to finish it a day earlier than you did. Yeah. And that was a disappointment to you. Well. I mean, it it happened. We got it. Mm -hmm. But I was really hoping for eight. All right. And you start pushing back. You start start, uh, winning battle after battle against the English. Mm -hmm. There are some historical records that are conflicted on exactly what you were doing there, though. Like, and so, like... Can, can you tell me, like, what your contribution was? <laughs> no, but, it, you know, the historical record is mixed on this. Well, it, so it depends on the day. So, like, okay. one day if you're out there just punching British people in the face, <laughs> I'm not comfortable with weapons because I want to feel in my body 
what I'm doing to another human. Really? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think there's something about having a muscle memory in your hands mm-hmm. for extracting the life from someone. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like as a child, again, most of the murder I saw was with a weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it felt very impersonal. Gotcha. And I wanted the British to know, like, no, this is about you. Yeah. Well, I understand that when you were on trial later in your life that you said you did not fight with a weapon, that the banner and divine inspiration were your weapon. Was that like a little sort of like word play that you were saying, like, yeah, the banner was my weapon because I didn't have weapons. Yeah, the I was banner was my using weapon. Using my fists. Because, you know, they send me here and this is... I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I was told to by a big grumpy angel, and I'm making it happen, you know? Mm -hmm. But also, I want to feel your face crumple under my hands. So you were in the thick of this battle. Like, are you also leading, or are you just on the front lines just, like, murdering English people? Yeah, I mean, so what we do is we would roll up together. It's like a long walk from battle to battles. (laughs) So you have a lot of time to just chat. Uh, and so, like, while we would chat about it, we'd come up with game plans. Mm-hmm. But mostly we were just like, God, British people. Mm-hmm. You ever notice that their skin's almost translucent? This is something that you would say, like, mm-hmm. as you're walking. Okay. Like, you can see the light through their ears mm-hmm. on a sunny day. Uh, and so we would just talk about just how crappy they were mm-hmm. and then get us real riled up. And I'm going to lay you in a little secret. Mm-hmm. British guys are not that good at fighting. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're they're still very polite in general. All right. Had a lot of concerns about hitting women in the face. Oh, so maybe that was one of the advantages that you uh, used to Yeah, it was for battles. sure like, well, I know if you would for sure rape me, but I'm glad that you have a hesitancy about punching me. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. Like Maybe they're like, well, we can't rape this girl with all these... You know, French warriors around. Yeah, you know, and so then, that was nice. That well, was that's a real all happening. Benefit. It was a real pro. <laughs> oh wow! Mm. Um, now I read that as your military victory started to mount, that the British actually started a rumor about you. Um, oh, that several, which is the one you're talking about. <laughs> well, they said that instead of it wasn't divine inspiration that was. Uh, having you win all these battles, but that you were actually possessed by the devil, and that it was only through devil power that you were able to destroy all these British troops. And that one wasn't even that bad. Like, I feel like that one was cool, because then you're like, yeah, I've got the devil in me. (laughs) Do you have any idea how scared people are of you when they think that you have the devil in you? I mean, I can imagine, definitely. More scared than when you have God in you, which is curious. (laughs) To me. Okay. Can you tell me, like, what were some of the other rumors that these guys were coming up with? Oh, God. There was a one about this one guy, Jean-Luc, which I never even had any sort of a relationship with. Mm-hmm. But that I was like, uh, what did I say now? Like, thirsty. Like, I just, like, wouldn't stop bothering him. Really? And I was like, I'm not even into that guy mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. So that was embarrassing. Okay. Um, there was another one about, I don't know if this word means anything to you. Dentata. Dentata. Well, oh, yes. I'm yeah. familiar with Dentata. And that was just hurtful. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, I'm still a teenage girl. I'm still coming to terms with my body and its changes. Yeah, probably like 17, 18 years old at this point yeah, in your life. Yeah, it's like it's still, I'm still growing. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, girls don't need to hear that they have teeth in their vagina. Yeah. Even yeah. if they're murdering you. Understood. Yeah. I mean, mean. Well, what are the one of the um, uh, aspects of you, what you would call your um, divine providence was that you were this virgin warrior in addition to being, you know, sent from God. It was mm-hmm. it was you were you were not only um, uh, directed by God, but that you were a pure vessel for yeah. his voice because you were a virgin. Yeah. That's also the thing is, it's a little embarrassing Mm-hmm. Kind of, because I was 18. What, being you know? a virgin? Yeah. Like, you were like, I'm super pure, but also like, aww. <laughs> uh, and I feel like the British were real jerks about it. Oh, were they? They had a lot to say about why I was. Well, oh. In a way that was just hurtful. Okay. The I mean, body shaming group. They, the they British were, Army at that time. They were big body shamers in the... Yeah, they were just like, it's because you're ugly. It's not because of God. And wow. It was like, well, I'm going to kill the hell out of you, so... Wow. Yeah. That is, um, yeah. I it was rude. Yeah. It was super rude. Mm-hmm. I mean, that must be painful to to relive, to think about all the things that they I used to say. I murdered a lot of them, <laughs> so I I'm sort of made my peace. Understood. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, we touched upon this a little bit about how um, the successes that you had in your life in a very short military career, you, you're accomplishing so much. You're 17 years old. You're 18 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, did, did you sense any animosity between people, your peers of that age? You know, they like they're trying to accomplish things and you suddenly are on this rocket ship to success. You know, you are mm-hmm. you're you're renowned in both the British and the French empires. Well, I think the thing is, when you're in battle, you're not really hanging out with a lot of other 17 or 18 year old girls. Okay. Is this, you're sort of inoculated from it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I did worry that at peak. Okay. You know, I didn't want to be one of those women that's like, oh man, remember, remember when when I was really great when I was eighteen and murdering everybody. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm like married. I have three kids, (laughs) and one of them won't hug me Mm -hmm. anymore. It, you know, and Hmm. that's just my life. Was there ever a moment when you were in battle when you thought like you needed to start, you know, spreading your wings and? And uh, exploring other avenues, you know, for when for when your light maybe eventually fades. Well, I think the thing is, if you're if you're scared that you're going to peak, you don't want to walk away from it. You're like, well, I don't, what if this is the best that it gets? Okay. Then why don't I just stick with it mm-hmm. for like as long as possible to just stave off, you know, sad Joan of just hanging around, <laughs> drinking wine in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. and. Softly crying. Do you think that that may have been what precipitated your downfall? The fact that you just wanted to continue doing the thing that you already knew you were amazing at? I don't know. I mean, it's tough to say. Uh, I feel like people definitely had some feelings about me in general. Mm -hmm. I don't think the devil thing helped. Okay. Uh, But yeah, maybe it felt like took a watercolor class or just broadened (laughs) my horizons a little bit or my base. Yeah, it might have helped a little bit. That might have made me more likable. Yeah, well, that leads me to um, what may be a painful memory for you, and I apologize for bringing this up, but, um, you know. Most of it wasn't a picnic, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, you, you have this three years of, of uh, military victories with the French, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're doing really well. And then you get captured after trying to attack the Burgundian army. Um, looking back, do you think that you have a better idea now of what went wrong during that siege and that led to your eventual capture? I do think um, weapons would have helped. Oh, so now the, yeah, what you I mean, once I thought of as... It wouldn't have been as satisfying, but 
there are any war generals listening. Mm -hmm. Pro tip. You would say weapons. If they have weapons. Okay, I understand. Think about it. Okay. Now, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you're so popular. You're doing such a good job with this army. Oh, thank you. Had other people... (laughs) Had other people um, adopted the same philosophy as you? Were other people in your in your uh, you know battle battlements going without arms as well? Oh yeah, well I would get what they would call a murder glow, um, <laughs> okay, because it was so satisfying. And it's tough to say if it's a little bit was God's love or a little bit was just the murder. But after a real victory, I just I felt peaceful, mm-hmm. and people were like, I want that. Yeah. So a lot of them ended up going with just the hands okay and i mean besides for when you were eventually captured what did you feel like that was a a positive tactic to use uh to murder with well i think it's personally very satisfying Mm -hmm. Uh, i just think it might not be the most efficient Uh, so like what i would say is uh uh, if you are making pasta at your house you're making spaghetti Mm -hmm. if you make your own pasta it's more delicious you're really able to just Breathe into that meal and gotcha. savor it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, people are coming over. You got to just use the store pop brand. Yeah, box yeah. pasta. I understand. Um, moving on, um, you're captured by the English and you're put mm. on trial for heresy. Um, <laughs> something that I found fascinating one of the charges against you was cross dressing because you had to wear men's armor in order to fight in the war there's no women's armor and so they view this as an affront to god that you are wearing men's clothing yeah which is like you don't even talk to him (laughs) you don't even know him yeah yeah of course um i mean how did you feel about that charge knowing that if they had just simply made women's armor you would have happily worn that or or would you have like maybe you wanted to keep wearing men's armor i don't think i had a strong feeling about it it was mostly just like what protects my organs uh it seemed like (laughs) of the stuff i did it felt like a real, like, page 32 on the list. Okay. So it felt strange to me that they were they so They would focus on that sort of thing. That. Yeah. Well, one of the things I found fascinating about your trial was it didn't seem like they were that concerned with how many of the British soldiers you had murdered. Mm. It was all about you saying that you spoke to God. And... It's like a real mean girls club. They don't, they don't care about the murder as much. But mm-hmm. they're real, like, hey, you can't wear that. Yeah. That's not for you. You can't sit with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, we know God better. Mm, yeah. Do you? Yeah. And they have all these trials trying to trick you into saying that you did not actually speak to God. And for a very long time, you're sticking with it, that you that you, that you you did have this divine intervention. Um, yeah. I mean, not God. I had a go-between, you yeah, know, a lot Yeah, with the Archangel time, Michael and but... the saints. Yes, of course. Um, you know, but then, of course, you eventually, to save your own life, decide to you know, recount these visions that you had, you know, was there a part of you that imagined your life after this? Like, if I just say it didn't happen, I can go and I can, I can do something else with my life. Well, I thought that it was going to go down slightly differently for me. Okay. And I thought that I was going to be able to say like, no, I didn't. And then I was going to be like, Taxi backsies. Oh, so Wink. once the trial is over, then you just mm. go outside and basically tell everybody like, like, JK. Okay. All right, yeah. but then you know, um, uh, you know, once you are free, then you know, mm. once everybody, you can you can do like your winky winky. Like, what does your life look like then? You know, had you been had you been set free? Well, I don't. You know, if really hadn't figured it out, I was spending a lot of time trying not to be killed, so mm-hmm. I didn't have as much time to focus on me um, okay. as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, you know, thinking, uh, cool. Maybe I don't have to have kids. Maybe I could like get out there. And be, you know, 
that virgin thing doesn't have to be forever. <laughs> I'm a young woman. We can see how it goes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to explore that a little. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, as your story begins incredibly, it ends incredibly as well, um, you agree to their terms. You, you um, renounce your... Uh, divine prophecies. You denounce that you have any relationship with uh, divinity, and you just dis- and you agree to start wearing women's clothing. And yet, they still burn you at the stake. They still find you guilty. I'll be honest. I'm still real annoyed at Mike because it feels <laughs> like, come on, buddy, mm-hmm. tit for tat, mm-hmm. help you, me out. Do you feel like he should have uh, prevented that fate for you? I feel like I could have done with one less bread miracle mm-hmm. if we just had a big gust of wind that blew it out. <laughs> blew out the fire that was enveloping could, your body. At the yeah, time. Mm-hmm. not have burned to death. Now, when you when you're when you're in the middle of these um, these battles, are you still finding like little pieces of food and yeah, those little so miracles? much, so many snacks on the battlefield. <laughs> You never find a full meal, but you get a lot of little pieces. <laughs> sort of like tapas. Sort of like a yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. right. so you gotta don't be careful with meat because sometimes you're like ah meat, mm-hmm. and then you put it in, and you're like I think that was a person, <laughs> a piece of them. So as I mentioned before, sad sad into your story. You're 19 years old. They burn you with a stake, but you save France. Mm. You know, a country that exists today in part because of your intervention. Joan of Arc, knowing how you would suffer saving your country, was it worth it? Uh, there's a couple things I'd do differently. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, maybe I'd still go to all the battles, but then just sneak out or talk to God and be like, throw me a bone. Okay. A little. Mm-hmm. That murder was good, though, so mm. it's tough to say. Murdering that is... That was most of it. was a lot of murder. <laughs> and then, like, oh, they got me. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, St. Joan of Arc. That is all for this week's episode of Famous Dead People. like to thank my guests, Charlie Champlin and St. Joan of Arc, for joining us in the studio today. Uh, I have one final question for you both. I know it's a little bit weird, but I'd like to end every show by asking my guests... If they'd like to plug a comedy show or a funny Twitter account. I know it's a little weird, but, you know, if you have anything that you'd like to mention to the uh, to the audience out there. Oh, yes. I, uh, I I would encourage you to go see The Boss at Magna Theater Thursdays at 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Part of mm-hmm. Block Party. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, Miss Joan of Arc? Oh, um, there's a show called The Friday Night Show mm-hmm. at 8.30 at the Magna Theater that's great. Um, you, like... Put in your secrets, and instead of killing you for them, they <laughs> make jokes about it, and that's that feels nice. That sounds magical. If you have any questions that you'd like to ask your favorite dead person, please email that to us at famousdeadpeopleshow at gmail.com. We'll try to have them on as soon as we can. We're here every Monday at 3 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care, guys. Famous dead people. Famous dead people. Famous dead people. Famous dead people. Oh, famous.